Now, as Stephen continues to preach through um, Luke's gospel, we want to read this morning, and our passage will be from uh, Luke 20 and from verse 20 through to 26. Starting at verse 20, it says, Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, Show me a denarius, whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. May God bless the reading of his word and the preaching of it just a little later. Would you turn in the passage uh, to the passage that uh, Ken read uh, to us? I think it's important that we open our Bibles. Um, I preach in an expository way, and it's important that you see that what is said actually comes from the text. And I would just ask you to open your Bibles, and when I say look at verse so-and-so that you actually do, look at it just to check me uh, that I'm delivering what is in accordance with uh, the Word of God. Uh, Luke chapter 20, and looking from verse 19 through to 26, Jesus unites people. He takes people from different cultures, different communities, different social backgrounds, different families, uh, from different social, uh, um, from different stratas of, of society, and He forges them into one worshiping community. He unites them together in a common commitment to Him. But from this passage, we see that our Lord not only unites people in their common commitment to Him, but He unites people in their common opposition of Him. If you look at verse 19, we're told, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Him that very hour, for they perceived that He had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. They can't openly oppose Jesus because of His popularity with the masses, so secretly they uh, call His opponents together uh, to a strategy planning meeting. Now, when you compare the gospel records, you discover that they call together a very diverse group of people. Matthew tells us the Pharisees were there. The Pharisees were the uh, ultra-Orthodox fundamentalists of their day, and they didn't like the chief priests, and the chief priests didn't like them. He also uh, uh, tells us that the Herodians were there. The Herodians were the pro-Herod party, who, although Herod wasn't strictly a Jew, accepted his kingship and collaborated with him in the exercise of his authority over the Jews. Now, the Pharisees didn't like the Herodians, and the Herodians didn't like the Pharisees. The Herodians didn't like the scribes, and the scribes didn't like the Herodians. The chief priests and the Herodians got on okay, but neither of them liked the Pharisees or the scribes. 
So here is this hodgepodge of traditional enemies who come together to hatch a devious and dastardly plot to eliminate, to, uh, eliminate and neutralize the growing, the growing influence of Jesus. And the plot that they hatch is not only dastardly and devious, but astute and brilliant, designed not only to humiliate uh, our Lord before the people, but to get rid of Him once and for all. However, the one thing that this motley band of antagonists didn't reckon on was the sheer brilliance of Jesus. In a moment, with a phrase that is passed uh, down into everyday language and into history, He silenced them completely. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Look at verse 26. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. They were stunned into silence. They had nothing more to say. Now, this is one of the most important passages in all of the New Testament, and is so instructive on so many different levels. And I want you to notice three things this morning. The attempt to trap Jesus, the astonishing response of Jesus, and the principles established by Jesus. So, first of all, then, the attempt to trap Jesus. In verse 20, this GRJ committee, that's the Get Rid of Jesus committee, sent spies to Jesus. They didn't come themselves because by their dress and by their accent, these priests, Pharisees, scribes, and Herodians were easily identified. If they asked the question, they would have immediately put Jesus on his guard, but they wanted Jesus to drop his guard so that they could entice him into saying uh, some unguarded thing. So, they sent spies to catch Jesus. The authorized version says to take hold of his words. They wanted Jesus in some unguarded moment to say something that would incriminate himself. So, these spies come, and they engage in fulsome flattery. Now, flattery is the opposite of gossip. Gossip is saying something behind somebody's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Flattery is saying something to their face that you wouldn't say behind their back. Both are reprehensible and equally hypocritical. But here these spies butter Jesus up. Look at verse 21. Uh, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, that word teacher or master, as the authorized version has it, uh, was a word that was reserved for the most respected rabbis in the country. So, they elevate him by giving him rank, and then by asking a question. They say, we know that you speak and teach uh, rightly. That uh, Greek word rightly is, is the word orthos, from which we get our word orthopedics, to straighten bones, orthodontist, to straighten teeth, or orthodox, straight teaching. You're a straight teaching. Your teaching is absolutely straight, straight in content, straight from the Bible, straight as a die. We know that you don't show partiality, literally that you don't look on anyone's face. You don't take uh, people's faces, people's response into consideration. You just say what needs to be said. You shoot from the shoulder. You show no partiality. You don't uh, adapt your message to suit your congregation. Now, of course, those things were true. Jesus was a completely orthodox teacher and didn't adapt 
uh, what he said to uh, suit anyone else. But Jesus, we're told in verse 23, perceived their craftiness. Uh, The NIV says he saw through their duplicity. He knew what they were up to. He saw this fulsome compliment uh, for what it was and knew they were trying to catch him out. Now, notice with me their question and their intention. Look at their question. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or, or not? Now, that question was a a live issue among the Jews. It was the political hot potato of uh, Jesus's day. It was a practical question that was politically and spiritually explosive. Indeed, it's, it's highly unlikely that the spies came up with that question on their own, but it was the fruit of hours of discussion in that GRJ committee, that Get Rid of Jesus committee. So, here they come with a question that has been carefully crafted to catch Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. Is it lawful for us to pay tribute to Caesar or not? Now, the Jews hated paying any taxes to the Romans because the Romans were an occupying force. They didn't mind paying their tithes to God, but not their taxes to Rome. Now, the Romans had all kinds of taxes. There was income tax, there was a a land tax, there was a a good tax which was payable at every harbor, every border, and every city gate. But we know from Matthew's gospel that the tax that they had in mind was a poll tax. The NIV translates that as tribute because tribute was paid by a citizen, uh, a ruler, or a country to uh, some um, conquering force, some superior ruler as an indication of their submission. And the poll tax was one denarius each year and was uh, leveled on all residents right throughout the whole Roman Empire. Now, a denarius was about a day's wages. So, in today's money, that was about equivalent to 70 pounds. So, it was, it was a nominal amount, maybe equivalent to our car tax. But the Jews hated this tax because it wasn't based on profit or produce. It was simply because they were part of the Roman Empire. Now, just to give you an idea of uh, how toxic this question was, 30 years before, Judas the Galilean had led a rebellion against Rome on, on this very issue, on this poll tax, a rebellion that was viciously squashed by Rome. Thirty years later, after Jesus, the rebellion that led to the desecration of the temple, the ransacking of Jerusalem, and the dispersion of the Jews uh, uh, from uh, Judea and Galilee began, began with a refusal to pay this tax to Rome. This was no theoretical, obscure, and irrelevant question. This was a live, toxic question that, depending on how he answered, would have serious implications for Jesus. This was a question that was carefully thought up by the GRJ committee and calculated to do as much damage to Jesus as possible. Now, what was their intention in asking that question? Well, you see, if Jesus had have answered, yes, Uh, you should pay your taxes to Caesar, Uh, he would have had no standing among the people because of the popular hatred of this tax and the smoldering resentment against it. Jesus would be seen as one who compromised 
uh, uh, with Rome and was a collaborator. His standing would have been significantly damaged in the eyes of the Jewish people. If he didn't make an anti-Rome statement, he couldn't be the Messiah. On the other hand, and this was really their intention, if Jesus said, withhold your taxes, he would have immediately been arrested by Rome and tried for treason. Uh, Look at the end of verse 20. Their intention was to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. That's why the Herodians were involved. As a former North Antrim MP would have said, the Herodians were in cahoots with the Romans. They would just feed that information back to the Romans. Jesus would have been arrested and ultimately executed. To the Jews, this tax, paying this tax was treason, and to the Romans, not paying this tax was treason. Either way, they had him. It was an absolutely brilliant question. In fact, one wonders how long it took for that GRJ committee to think up the question. If he answered yes, his influence would be neutralized with the Jews. If he answered no, the Romans would neutralize him. It was a win-win situation. If yes, he would be seen as a lackey of Rome. If no, he would die at the hands of Rome. That's the attempt to trap Jesus. The second thing I want you to notice is the astonishing response of Jesus. I say astonishing because we're told in the text in verse 26 that the spies themselves were, uh, the spies themselves marveled at his answer. The NIV says were astonished at his answer. They had no response. They could make no response or give a reply to what our Lord said. They thought they had him one way or another, and with one statement, Jesus silenced them. In verse 24, Jesus asked for a denarius and asked the question, whose likeness is on this? And what does the inscription say? Now, the denarius was a a gold or silver coin which was minted in Rome itself. On one side was a portrait of uh, the current Caesar, and on the other side was an inscription. Now, there were two coins in circulation um, in Jesus' day, one with a portrait of Tiberius, Caesar, and on the other side of that coin, the inscription read, High Priest of God. And the more up-to-date one had Augustus Caesar on one side, and on the other side, the inscription read, The Son of God. Now, both these things were offensive to the Jews. The portrait was considered to be a graven image, and the inscription was an insult to God Himself and to the religion He revealed. But the point is this, and this is where the sheer brilliance of Jesus comes in, one of the spies had the denarius in his pocket. He said to them, give me a denarius. And the spy puts his hand into his pocket or opens his purse and produces this denarius. If they were so offended by the image and by the inscription, why did he have one on his person? In using the coin, he was accepting the authority the benefits, and the fact that they were under the jurisdiction of Rome. And Jesus, in a statement that historians universally accept as one of the most profound political statements ever made in the world, delivers the final blow when He says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. The coin is Caesar's, He says. It belongs to Him. 
You have accepted his authority by possessing that coin, and you have a a responsibility to render to him the things that belong to him. Do you see how wise and insightful our Lord was with this simple answer? He not only embarrassed them, but silenced them completely. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. I'm sure the spy that reached into his pocket for that coin just wanted the ground to open up and swallow him with embarrassment. He had Caesar's coin in his pocket. The fact that he had it demonstrated that he accepted the currency and the authority of Rome. The astonishing response of Jesus. Our our Lord was absolutely brilliant in how He dealt with those critics uh, that came to Him. The attempt to trap Jesus, the astonishing response of Jesus. The third thing I want you to see this morning is the principles established by Jesus. Now, in this remarkable statement of Jesus, our Lord lays down three important principles. He tells us something about our responsibility to the state. He tells us something about the separation of church and state. And thirdly, our responsibility to God. So, first of all, our responsibility to the state. Jesus is clearly teaching in this statement that as citizens of a country, we have a duty to obey the laws of that country. There are some Christians who feel that they have a a moral duty to opt out of the state, out of society, and to play a part in society is to be unfaithful to God. Not at all, says Jesus. The very opposite is true. We have a responsibility to the state and a duty to obey those that rule over us. We are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Paul expands in this in Romans chapter 13, and and Peter as well in his first epistle. But turn with me to Romans chapter 13 uh, and verses 1 and 2 for a moment. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Notice this. this. This is absolutely startling. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Notice this, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. All authorities from the queen to the magistrate, from the prime minister to the policeman, from the tyrant to the taxman, all authorities have been instituted by God. The authorized version says ordained by God. The NIV says established by God. All authority, authorities have been ordained by God. Now, it would be easier to believe if all good godly authorities have been established by God. But Paul doesn't say that. He says, all authorities, whether good or bad, have been ordained by God, and Christians have a responsibility to obey them. It doesn't matter if they're Islamic or communists, monetarists or socialists, nationalists or unionists, morally upright or morally repugnant. We as Christians have a duty to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, you may object and say, well, how can a Christian be subject to an anti-Christian, totalitarian, totalitarian, morally bankrupt government? 
Well, remember the context into which Jesus spoke and into which Paul wrote. Rome was a a godless, pagan, morally bankrupt, totalitarian, and oppressive regime. Most of the emperors were bisexual or homosexual. Homosexual, uh, Homosexuality was rampant within the Roman Empire. Um, Infanticide was common practice, just late abortion. The, The society was morally repugnant and morally bankrupt. And yet, into that context, Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And Paul says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. The Christian is to be the best citizen of the country to which he belongs. He obeys its laws. He pays his taxes, and he casts his foot. He renders to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The only exception is when the state asks Uh, uh, him to do something that runs contrary to Scripture. And then the principle articulated by Peter and John to the Sanhedrin applies. It's better to obey God than man. Let's apply this to a toxic issue of our day. Let's, Let's apply it to the wearing of face masks. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authority, says Paul. He who resists the authorities resists God. Now, I wear a face mask for four reasons. I wear a face mask because of that second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. The second, first and greatest commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is to love your neighbor as yourself. And those laws summarize all of Old Testament um, legal requirements. So, that command to love my neighbor as myself expresses itself in ways like building a parapet uh, round uh, my house when I'm do- engaging in building so that falling masonry or tools will not hurt anyone. That's an expression of love your neighbor as yourself. It means covering my well so that uh, a passerby or his animals don't fall into that well. We have a responsibility to, to love our neighbor, to protect our neighbor. Secondly, I have a responsibility to be sensitive to those who have scruples and sensitivities about certain things. So, Paul says, um, if my eating meat causes another believer to stumble, I will never eat meat again, that I sacrifice my liberty in order to accommodate the sensitivities of others. And if other older people particularly uh, are sensitive about coming to church in this pandemic, well, I wear a mask out of regard for them and in order to protect them. Third reason, my witness to the world. Paul says, uh, to the Jew I became a Jew, to those under the law I became uh, as one under the law, lo, myself not being under the law, that by all possible means I would, would save some, by all possible means that I would save some, that, that I don't do anything that would cause an unbeliever to stumble on the gospel or cause them to take unnecessary offense at the church. There is the offense of the, the cross, but I don't want to give unnecessary offense and be a stumbling block to anyone. I want everyone to come to Jesus, and I want no one to be able to point the finger and say, those Christians in Mind Street just flout the law. I don't want anything to do with them. And then the fourth reason is this reason. 
because the government requires it. I don't like wearing a mask. Nobody likes wearing a mask, but the government requires it. We have a responsibility to the state. If, if, if the state says we should do it, we do it. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The second is equally significant principle, that is, and it's the separation of church and state. Now, that, of course, is a fundamental Baptist principle, the separation of church and state. But what does it mean? It doesn't mean that the Christian avoids the state and has no contact with the state. We have already seen that he is to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But it does mean that his political involvement and spiritual practice function separately. He is to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Let me give you a little history lesson. Constantine uh, is considered by many to be the greatest ever convert to Christianity. I believe that he was the greatest disaster uh, as far as the Christian church was concerned. On the night before a decisive building, uh, a battle in AD 312, Constantine had a vision of the cross, and underneath uh, that cross, he saw the words, in this sign you will conquer. And the following day, he instructed all his soldiers to paint a cross on their shields, and they won that battle. Constantine, as a result, declared himself to be a Christian, and as a result, the Roman Empire in 391 became the Holy Roman Empire. And the inevitable happened, and the church was flooded with opportunist politicians who used the church for uh, political advancement. It was riddled with nepotism and simonry, people buying positions in the church. So, in the history of the church in the medieval period, you had teenage card cardinals and teenage bishops and two teenage popes. Office and rank in the church were sought-after positions, and people uh, were made disciples not through the preaching of the gospel, but through coercion and persecution. So, the Crusades in the Middle Ages was a political movement to make Christians by, forth, by force. In the 16th century, God intervened with the greatest ever um, revival the church has ever known, or the world has ever known, the, the Reformation, and the gospel was recovered but the link between church and state continued because the reformers were magisterial reformers. So, um, Luther was not only a, a significant spiritual influence, but he, he was a political influence as well. Calvin was deeply involved in the political processes in Geneva, and Swingley, the third reformer, ultimately died in battle with a sword in his hand. And when the uh, Reformation came to the British Isles, England became an Episcopalian nation, Scotland became a Presbyterian nation, and Ireland remained a Catholic, largely a Catholic nation. Now, you will know that many of the Puritans refused to conform to the pattern of the Church of England and were uh, bitterly persecuted as a result, and many fled to America, the first on the Mayflower, but many in waves afterwards. But what's not generally known is that when the Puritans arrived in America and they set up the Massachusetts Bay Colony, they began to persecute people who didn't conform to their religion. Now, there was a man in the Massachusetts Bay Colony named Richard Williams. 
He had arrived in America in 1631 and soon discovered that he himself was persecuted because he was a Baptist. He was banished from the colony and survived through the Native Americans taking him in and looking after him, and he actually had a great influence upon uh, the Indian uh, communities. He returned to England. He petitioned the king, and uh, the king assigned to him what now is Rhode Island. And in that colony, he established the principle of separation and church, of church and state and religious liberty for all. So Jews, Catholics, and Quakers were allowed to uh, practice their religion in that colony, the only colony that was established that allowed that to happen at that time. Eventually, that principle made its way into the American Constitution and ultimately made its way back across the Atlantic uh, to Britain. But it is an important Baptist principle that we have responsibilities to the state and we have responsibilities to the church, but we don't mix those two things and we don't confuse those two things. The church and the state are to function separately. We are to be involved in politics, sure. We are to seek to influence politicians, to be sure. We can even stand as politicians, but as citizens of that country, the state must not interfere in the church, and the church doesn't interfere in the state. They function separately. Both are ordained by God, and both are accountable and answerable to God. That's what Jesus is teaching when He says, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God. And I thank God, as a Baptist, that during 30 years of uh, the troubles that blighted uh, this province, that, that uh, Baptist churches were able to navigate and negotiate that fine line between church uh, and state in an exemplary way. So, the principles established by Jesus, our responsibility to the state, the separation of church and state, and then lastly, our responsibility to God. Jesus says we are to render to God the things that are God's. With one sentence, Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of the GRJ committee and the spies that they sent. The question of our relationship to the state comes a distant second to the most important question about our relationship to God. The man who is created by God has a more fundamental issue to sort out than his relationship to the state, and that's his relationship to God. He must serve God and have a right relationship with God above everything else. That's the most crucial question that needs to be answered. Just as that coin had the image of Caesar on it, so we have the image of God stamped on us. And just as that image indicated that that coin belonged to Caesar, so the uh, image of God indicates that we belong to God. He made us he created us in His image. Those uh, words in Genesis 1, 27, so God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. That word image in the Greek translation of the Old Testament is exactly the same word as the word that appears in verse 24, whose likeness, whose image is this, that you are an image bearer of God. 
That doesn't mean to say that you look like God because God is spirit and God is invisible, but rather, like God, you are a spirit. You have a spirit. You are a spiritual creature with spiritual aspirations, spiritual desires, and spiritual obligations. You were created for a relationship with God. You are designed for a relationship with God. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes that he has set eternity in your heart. But something happened to interrupt that relationship. If you are to render to God the things that are God, then you do not belong to God. There's something that has come in to spoil and destroy your relationship with God. When Adam sinned, there was a breach, there was a a division that came between us and God. But now we need to give ourselves back to God through Jesus, because He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who came to bridge the gap between God and us. What separates us from God is our sin. And until that sin is removed, we cannot be reconciled to God. But that's why Jesus came. He came to suffer, to bleed, and die, to deal with sin, to take away sin, that we might be reconciled to God. And it's by believing in Jesus that we're reconciled to Him. And when we believe in Jesus, we are given back to God, to the one to whom we rightfully belong. You belong to God. His image is in you and on you. You have a never-dying soul, and you must give that soul back to Him. You must render to God the things that are God's. You must come and give yourself up, give yourself over to Him. To do so is to give back to God what rightfully belongs to Him. Maybe I'm speaking to someone who is already a Christian. You've done that. You have given yourself over. You've given yourself up to God. You have yielded yourself to Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You belong to Him. But there are still little bits of your life, little bits of your heart that are pockets for yourself, little bits that still have your name on them. And Jesus says to you this morning, render unto God the things that are God. Don't hold anything back. In the words of Paul, offer yourself up as a living sacrifice, sacrifice wholly acceptable and pleasing to, to God. So, to both Christians and non-Christians alike, God's Word comes to us this morning and says, render uh, to God the things that are God. Give God what He rightfully owns and what He rightfully deserves, which is all of our hearts. Those are the three great principles that can be established from this passage. Our duty to the state, the separation of church and state, and our duty to God. The attempt to trap Jesus. The astonishing response of Jesus. How amazing our Lord's answer was. And the principles established by Jesus, our duty to the state, the separation of church and state, and our duty to God. Amen.